Good morning, Grace Church. Welcome this morning as we worship the Lord together. Uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we want to welcome anybody that's new. We have QR codes around for you to get connected with us. They look like this. You see them around. If you wonder what these things were that's hooked up to the sides of the tent, they are for each and every one of us to click your phone and look at the information for new people to be able to connect with us. And then for those that just those of you that just want to check your information and sign up to serve, you can do that. I want to remind us that we are a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and sacrificially serving Jesus. Now, men, we have an event coming up next Saturday, November the 7th, from 10 to 1. The first part is going to be some teaching on biblical masculinity, and then lunch, and then after that, we have the rest of the afternoon for playing games. So come and join us for that. Sign up online, and it's $5 for lunch. And then we have uh, coming up in 15 days, November the 15th, we have our Thanksgiving gathering here under the tent. And we won't be having food, but we will be having great fellowship. So plan to, to come, plan to come and join us for that. If you please stand for, um, I'm going to share with you Psalm 27. Please stand and we'll read that together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Join me in prayer. Lord, you are worthy to be praised as we thank you for being our light, our salvation, and our stronghold. As this world goes its way, you are our confidence as we seek after you that we may dwell in your house all the days of our life and gaze upon your beauty. Amen. Oh, you're 
standing for the reading of God's word as we stand in honor of God and his word. We'll be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 7, open up to chapter 7, verses 7 to 14. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is it the end of things than in the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. 
Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You may be seated. Today, our missionary highlight is Nate and Kayla. We'll be praying for them as part of our pastoral prayer. If you'll join me in prayer now. God, our Father, you deserve the worship of your people. We remember you give life to this world every day. We are awed by the sunrise and blessed by the colors of the sunset. We are overwhelmed by the expanse of the sea and the lights in the universe. You are perfect and holy, and we bow down to honor and glorify you today. In your mercy and grace, you have allowed us to come before you to confess our sin, to repent and turn away from our wayward striving. Search our hearts and convict us of our sin, that in our brokenness we have a place to turn, the cross of your Son. You have blessed us with life through the life-giving blood of your Son, Jesus. We humbly come before you to give thanks to you in our worship. We worship you in music and song. We honor you in the reading of your word. You are holy and merciful and have done a miraculous work in your mercy towards us in cleansing us and freeing us from the bondage of sin and death. We thank you, Father. We pray for your continued work in us through the transforming power of your Holy Spirit to make us a people of love, grace, and patience in a world lost in their own idols. May we here at Grace Church be a light in this dark place that souls may come to be renewed by the truth of your word. We pray for your work to continue throughout the world as we remember Nate and Kayla. Protect them as they work in spreading your love through the gifts that you have given them. We pray for our time now that you would bless us in the preaching of your word. We humbly thank you for your presence and the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, we humbly give our hearts and minds to you. Amen. Right heart, you won't turn 
Lord, we know that even this week, even in all the things that we've done, we're in such great need of your mercy. And so we pray this morning that you would turn our eyes towards the cross where Christ died in our place. Lord, that's our only hope, and we, we trust him for mercy. We thank you for the gift that you've given us in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. We consider a lot of choices in life. Uh, you're faced with many decisions that you're going to be making, and uh, we face these decisions, uh, considerations, allegiances in life, and they run the gamut from the mundane to the very, very important. Uh, let's say you're going to throw a party. You need to say, like, who should I invite? Uh, what should I serve? Where shall we meet? Things like that. Uh, you go to a restaurant, some of you can't decide what to get, right? What am I supposed to order at the restaurant? Maybe kids, you're playing with your toys, you're like, what should I make? What should I build? Uh, maybe you want to get married, and you're like, who should I marry? Or, I found the person, but where do we hold the ceremony? Who do we invite? Where do we live? All that. Others of you are thinking about money, and what kind of retirement account am I going to have, and Others are thinking about what kind of house do I want or what kind of car should I buy? Uh, and then, of course, who to vote for in the election, right? So you might have already voted. Maybe you're going to vote uh, before Tuesday or maybe on Tuesday. But here's what we do with all these considerations and all these decisions in life. We, we do side-by-side -side comparisons. 
You know, we look at all the cars, we look at all the couches or whatever it is we're getting, and we do all these things and we drive ourselves mad at times. We drive people around us crazy at times. Because the choices are endless. And we always wonder, what should I do? And today, let me just say, I've got good news for you. It's going to all be worked out in the next 30 minutes. All right? And, and here's why. Solomon is going to tell us that you need to consider, see, recognize, and look at the works of God. And that is going to put all your other choices and all your other decisions and all your other considerations into proper focus and perspective. What we're learning, we're going to learn this in this passage in, in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 7 through 14, that you must consider the work of God. You must recognize what God does and then act accordingly. Then make your decisions. Because what's going to happen is all those other decisions you're making in life are going to be under, appropriately under, considering the works of God. The point today is this. Wisdom is glorifying God for his sovereignty. If you're wise, you're going to glorify God for his sovereignty. You're going to know that everything in your life is under God and his sovereignty. Now, last week, we looked at Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 6, and we saw death preaching us a sermon at a funeral, basically, life lessons from a funeral. And there were very important lessons to learn. Your reputation matters. Death is better than birth. You gotta understand the effects of the fall that we're living under. You gotta live in light of death and eternity. You gotta treasure the comfort of community. You gotta receive rebuke as a gracious gift. And you've got to die well. What's gonna happen now as we go into verses seven to 14 is this passage is gonna keep teaching us life lessons, but not from the vantage point of death, from the vantage point of wise life. Wise life. And so I'm just going to lay out the points for what this passage is is bringing us uh, to appropriately consider the works of God. Here's what you must wisely do. Number one, govern your inner life. Govern your private life, verses 7 through 9. Number two, guard your public or outer life, verses 10 through 12. And then number three, glorify God for his sovereignty, verses 13 and 14. Govern your private life, guard your public life, glorify God for his sovereignty. That's where this passage takes us. So let's talk about the first thing, that that wisdom must govern your private inner life. So look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 in your Bibles. Just put your eyes on that verse. It begins with the word surely. So Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts your heart. First word in the Hebrew is surely. It introduces a very strong idea. And it's saying to us that oppression uh, bewilders you, it befuddles you, it infuriates you even, and it can cause the wise to go off track. That oppression can cause the wise to go off track. That it, it, it possesses the power to pressure the wise into playing the fool contrary to the faith that you profess. This is dangerous stuff. A wise man can lose his reason under oppression or even being deceived by a bribe. And it's madness. It drives the wise into madness. What does that mean? It means to look foolish. 
It means to make a mockery of it. Literally, act the madman. And this is what oppression and a bribe can do to you. Bribes erode moral fabric, moral fiber, moral foundation. It, it corrupts. That's the word. It's a strong word. It, it means to give up as lost, to cause to perish, to destroy something. That's what corrupts means. The corruption of your heart is no small trifle. It's not a little thing. It can ruin you. Corruption of the heart, or you take moral shortcuts, or you cut corners regarding integrity. It damages your inner life. It damages your heart spiritually. In Deuteronomy 16, 19, it says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not accept a bribe. Like, do this, do me this favor, I'll pay you this money. Break this rule, do whatever, uh, cook the books, do whatever, and I will give you this. This is what you'll get as a result. And the reason why is a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise. Like, you can't see clearly. Eli's sons were this way. They turned after unjust gain. They took bribes, perverted justice. Lord Acton put it this way, all power tends to corrupt. Just be aware and then verse 8, this moves on proverb after proverb here. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning, the outcome of the event, the, the trial, the oppression that comes to you, the temptation to take a bribe that comes to you may actually be purposeful and as, as it's confined to a certain time, but the end result may make that bad thing a good thing in your life. That's why James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Because this is what is being called for. You'll notice verse 8 says, The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. It's a call to patience. It's saying it's morally better to be patient in your spirit than to be proud in your spirit. And these words, these phrases, patient in spirit, proud in spirit, they're very deep. There's a lot to them. It's an invitation for you to grasp onto the hope of Romans 8.28. That God causes all things to, get, to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting his finished work on the cross where he shed his blood to pay the penalty for your sin, and you're believing in Jesus, you're loving Jesus with all your heart because he saved you when you came to him by faith, then God's going to work all things together for good in your life. You're called according to his purpose. That's what it means. It's not a universal verse that everyone gets to claim. It's a truth about Christians. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning because the patient in spirit is better than the proud of spirit. Call to face trial with courage and not run away from it. So in Hebrew, patience here, it means long breath, like a lot of nostrils, like a long nose. And what it means is you're not quick to hot anger, like a, a bull pawing the ground with the short nostrils. They're just hot with anger, okay? But what, it, what it's pointing to is that patience is a form of humility that causes you to wait to respond. So patience in Hebrew means long breath or long nosed. God talks about himself like this in Exodus 34, 6. 
I am slow to anger. Literally, I am of long nose. His, his breath does not quickly break out in hot anger. Now, pride, on the other hand, can be expressed with the language of height, actually. So not length, but height. It literally means, pride literally means a high spirit. Like you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You think that you're better than other uh, people. That you can be a person here that's either long-spirited, patient, or high-spirited and proud. Well, it's better, it's morally excellent to have a length of spirit than a height of spirit. The length of spirit is patient endurance that matches up with being slow to anger. The Proverbs talks about it again and again. And the Proverbs use length of anger to mean slow to anger. And then Proverbs also talks about height of spirit to mean an arrogant heart. C.S. Lewis said it this way, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. You always think you're better. And he says, of course, if you are looking down on people, you cannot see something that is above you. And the idea is that you're not seeing God. You're not recognizing God. You think you're God. You think you're in control of everything, right? That's the idea of being arrogant or proud in your heart. What are we called to? In, in James 5.8, it says, be patient, be long-spirited, establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. You live, if you're a Christian, you're living knowing that Christ is returning and knowing that those who are his persevere in the faith because God perseveres them and they actually continue on in the faith and their profession of faith actually matches up with the way they live. So be patient and establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. The humble patience helps you to wait for the Lord and his timing in matters of your life and all those considerations and all those choices and all those quandaries you get into. James 5.11 says they are blessed who remain steadfast. And then it calls out the steadfastness of Job, the guy who you know, suffered more than any person in his in, in history almost, except for Jesus at the cross. And here is Job. It says, you've seen the purpose of God in the life of Job, how God is compassionate and merciful as he was going through all of that stuff. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Be patient. Be long-spirited. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you when Jesus Christ returns. Now verse 9 just flows right from verse 8, and says, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. So it's still on the, the long-nostriled idea, okay, that the reason why you don't want to be this way is because anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. Proverbs 14, 17 says, a man of quick temper acts foolishly. Ephesians 4, 26 says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. The Bible tells us the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so don't be quick in your spirit. Don't have a hair trigger on anger. Now, people were angered at Martin Luther. Here we are at the time of year that we remember the Reformation, right? People were angry at Martin Luther. I love what he said. He said, you know what? Always preach in such a way that people listening do not 
do, do, uh, come to hate their sin. Always preach that people would hate their sin. But he said, always preach in such a way that if the people listening do not hate their sin, they will instead hate you. Like, you're telling them the truth. If they're going to hate you, so be it. Receive it. The heat is a metaphor for anger. People are hating and pouring out refuse from their hearts. Jesus said the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The stuff you're saying comes right from your heart. We talk about heat as, as an anger metaphor. You know, I got steamed. Or I really just blew up. Or that person just blew up at me. I lost my cool, right? We say things like this. What you're supposed to do is strive for stability of spirit and, and just dial down the volatility. And some of you are like, oh, you don't know my family members. <laughs> yeah, you try to dial down that volatility. Well, look, I mean, anger is the fuel that feeds the fire of foolish pride. If you're angry, the fire of foolish pride is getting fueled by your anger in your life. James put it this way, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It takes us right back to Exodus 34 where God is speaking of himself and he says, look, I am slow to anger. I'm long-nostrilled. And I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, picture that. Hebrew, long nose, nostrils. Picture an angry bull pawing the ground, breathing loud, nostrils flared, short-nosed. And God doesn't have that hair trigger like some of us do. You know, we're powder kegs ready to blow at the late, least provocation. We're emotional dams ready to break slightest nudge. And we wrongly think that God must be like we are in that regard, that we think, well, God's anger is spring-loaded and ready to pounce. But his mercy, oh, we think of that as very reluctant, like you've got to coax that out of God. It's exactly the opposite. The Bible's always going to blow up your wrong views of God. God puts up with a lot. He is slow to anger. In his providence, in his sovereignty, he is holding out opportunity for people to repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. Believe his finished work on the cross, and you'll be saved. That's why his anger is slow. His wrath is ready to be poured out in the last times. The wrath will come. I mean, read your Bible. But you notice, sin slowly provokes God to anger. He allows in his sovereignty for sin to slowly provoke him to anger. And you'll notice in the Bible that God is not provoked to love and mercy. His, his love and his mercy is always at the ready. It's like a, a dammed up river that's ready to rush in and just refresh your soul. The mercy of God is free. Now, depraved humans, exactly the opposite. We are called to provoke one another to love and good deeds. We have to provoke one another to love and good deeds because that doesn't come quickly for us. Yahweh is provoked to anger 
because of sin, but he holds back the wrath that is due sin in mercy. Now, if you're a Christian, God's wrath is held back in mercy against your sin, and you're covered in the righteousness and the blood of Christ. If you're not a Christian, you are under the wrath of God. You are under the sentence of death. You, you, if you die without Christ, you will be in a Christless eternity. You will be in hell forever. And you will have the wrath upon you. God's mercy just rushes in and refreshes the soul of the repentant. We have to be provoked to love. God quickly shows mercy. You'll notice this verse says that anger lodges in the heart of fools. I know it's a silly illustration, but we probably all have something like this, but I've got a space between my back right molars that food just lodges in, okay? It's just the spot, okay? So if I, if I eat beef jerky, that's the spot that starts getting painful. Now, have no fear. I know it's kind of gross, but have no fear. I floss every day. So I get that stuff out, but sometimes it's like it starts hurting in the middle of the day. I'm like... It's lodging in there. It's made its home in there. It's stuck. I'm going to try to get it out with my tongue. I can't get it out with my tongue. I can't even use a toothpick. Got to wait to get the floss. Fishing line would probably work, but I don't, I don't just carry that around either. But here's the deal. Anger lodges in the heart of a fool. What does that mean? It means it makes its residence in your heart. It means it, it sets up its home in your heart that you would be characterized in that way, that it lodges, it settles down and makes its permanent residence in your heart. And your heart there in Hebrew is your lap or your bosom. It's where you would hold a, a, an infant gently and close. So if, if you don't remove anger from your life, it sets up a home in your heart and, and that's foolishness. Hebrews 12.15 says, don't let a root of bitterness spring up and then cause many to be defiled. Like, pull that root out. The fool holds on to the anger and, and literally keeps it close in a weirdly affectionate way. Like, they, they like it. They coddle it. They, they bring it up. And Solomon says, if that's you, if you won't let it go, you're a fool. If you're a short-fused person, you know what you invariably find in your life? That the bombs that you set for other people invariably are lying in your lap, and they explode. And you just become more miserable, and everyone else just stays away from you. How do you guard your heart to avoid anger? You really need to let the scalpel of the Word of God do its work upon your heart, and do surgery on your heart. You would let go of anger and resentment that you hold on to about people, about times, even towards God, that you would not nurture anger, but that you would repent of anger. And that think, you would think biblically because the word of God recalibrates your heart to even rejoice when you are oppressed. To even rejoice when you are going through the day of adversity. This is how God works. That you, first thing in this passage, you must govern wisely your private inner life. And, and if you're living in an unrighteousness, if you are oppressing people, or if you are taking bribes, you're dead wrong. 
you're living in unrighteousness, you're dead wrong. If you have a lack of integrity, it, it destroys your heart. But what, what, the, what this is calling you to do is be patient rather than oppressive or dishonest or proud or angry. It's the first thing we see in this passage. Start to the heart. Now you get into your life. Second point is now the wisdom that's in your heart must guard your life, your public life, your outer life. Look at verse 10. Now you're being told not to say something. Okay? Say not, why were the former days better than these? Like, don't complain about the good old days. Don't say, well, I liked it better when we lived here or when that person wasn't in my life or I liked it better when that was happening. Don't do it. It's foolish. The crushing reality is that longing for the good old days is foolish. Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. If it's not from wisdom, it's foolishness. When you're living in the past, this is what Israel did. They longed for Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. We had leeks and onions there. Now all we have here is manna. There were people that were upset at the, at the, building of the, temp, the rebuilding of the temple. And it's interesting that all the things, the day of small things, as Zechariah puts it, they were all steps toward the coming of Christ. And people didn't like what was going on. They wanted to go back. And, and to evaluate your life, that's fine. But to long for the former days, to ask for the former days is foolish. Instead, you want wisdom. Verse 11 says, wisdom is good with an inheritance. That doesn't mean only if you have an inheritance and you add wisdom to it, now it's good. What this is saying is, wisdom's from God and it, it's likened to an inheritance. Like wisdom is like an inheritance. So think of the best things about the inheritance. Don't think of the family fights that happen because of inheritance. Just think about the best parts about it. That someone saved up something for you because they love you. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. So again, wisdom is likened to an inheritance. Wisdom is from God. He gives wisdom. It is to be desired. You should want wisdom. And God's people should possess wisdom. God wants you, it's the will of God, for you to have wisdom. Inheritance was land belonging supremely to God that he granted to his people, covenantally, given to his people. It couldn't pass from the tribe. It couldn't pass out of the family. And so wisdom is like an inheritance. Verse 12 tells us the, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And you go, wait, wait a minute, hold on. So that's good? Well, sure, think about it. You have money to spend in life. That protects you in life. You can buy things, you can buy clothes, you can, you can do things, you can give. So the, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life who has it, of the one who has it. Now, the word protection is key here. It literally is shadow, like an umbrella, like a tent. We're being protected from the sun, except unless you're on the, sh you know, the edges over here, you're getting a little, a little uh, vitamin D there. Uh, but the, the shadow of money, the protection of money, the shadow of wisdom, the protection of wisdom. The idea is that the shadow of money is temporary, will help you a little in this life. The shadow of wisdom, though, is eternal. It protects you eternally. So like, like riches, in the best possible way, knowledge and wisdom protect your life. But much more significantly, like it's not temporary. It's, it's real and it lasts. 
And if you think about it, without wisdom, an inheritance can be you know, squandered. It won't sustain. But the Bible says the fear of the Lord begins wisdom. Psalm 57, David is fleeing from Saul, and he goes into a cave. And he says this to God. God, be merciful to me. In you, my soul takes refuge. There's the, the shadow. There's the protection. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction go by. That's wise. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe, trusting in the Lord. Isaiah 33, verse 6 says, The Lord will be the stability of your times, that he will, give, he will be an abundance of salvation and wisdom and knowledge to you. Because the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. So you need to see that wisdom protects you like money protects, only better, way better. And the painful question you've got to ask yourself is, am I relying on my money, my assets, my equity, my savings, my job to preserve me? Like, is that where my trust is lying in life? Like, do you have more money than wisdom? Like, do you put the same effort into growing in wisdom that you put into making sure you have everything that you want or need? See, this says that, that wisdom preserves the life of the one that has it. And, and that idea of having wisdom literally is being the master of it, being the owner of it, being the Lord of it. Interestingly, in the Hebrew, that word for the master of it or the one who has it is Baal. Uh, the same word for, for the God of the nations that oppressed and opposed God and Israel. You don't want to be an idolatrous master of wisdom. What you want to be is you want wisdom to protect your life, so you must own it. You must have it. You must hold it. You must keep it in your heart. You must guard your, your, your heart and then let it you know, flush out into your life in such a way that it's actually noticeable. You need God's wisdom for that. You need wisdom that's only from God. This is what James 3 says. James 3, 13 to 18. Who's wise? Who's understanding? It's the person who by their good conduct shows their works in the meekness of wisdom. Then it says, if there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, it's not wisdom from God. That is natural. That is earthly. That is demonic. It's unspiritual. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then full of good mercy, full of good fruits, impartial, sincere. That's wisdom from God. So you'll be able to recognize it in a person's life. The visible life of wisdom actually leads to contentment and blessing. And there's a lot of Christians that like to complain. I mean, we all complain. I complain, you complain, but there are a lot of Christians in this moment in time, 2020, the, the year that, never, you know, that no one wanted, right? I, I woke up this morning and I'm like, wow, it, it's November 1st, two more months left in 2020. But I started thinking about all the blessings that have happened in 2020. How many people have gotten saved? How many believers have gotten baptized? How many people are being sanctified? How many people are actually dialed in on the one another's right now in much more than they ever were before. And a lot of Christians right now want to complain and say, we can't do the one another's, you know, with all the COVID quarantines and lockdowns, government overreach and overreaction or underreaction, depending on where, you know, how you're seeing things. 
And I get it. I, I get the frustration. But to the person saying, I can't do the one another's, I call bluff on you. I literally call bluff on you because here's what I tell you. Stop making excuses. You do exactly what you want to do when you want to do it. You find a way to do what's most important to you. Don't tell me you can't do the one another's. Find a way to do the one another's. Do what God calls you to do. If it's important to you. I'll tell you what 2020 has made me more aware of is the one another's. Is shepherding the flock. Is praying and preaching the word. I'm more aware than ever before. You're like, well, but it's hard. Sorry to mock you. But seriously, I call bluff on that. If it's tough, and if it's not easy, I say good. It'll be, it'll be, um, it'll be less difficult for you and I to ignore it or let it fall by the wayside. You know, one path of wisdom, fear of the Lord. You repent of sin, you look to Christ. John says it, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, this ongoing knowledge of God, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is Paul saying to Philippians, you know what? I count everything, count, consider, I see. I see everything in my life, and you know what? I, I see it all as loss, like rubbish, like throw out the trophies and throw out the trash because I know Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is better. You must wisely govern your private life, your inner life. You must wisely guard your public outer life. You just accept your lot with wisdom. So this is the way God has worked my life. I don't question his providential orchestration so much. Just recognize, you know what wisdom does? It, it positions you to live well, and, and it protects your life. And that really sets us up for the last two verses. And this, this last point, you must wisely glorify God for his sovereignty. This is what 13 and 14 do. Verses 13 and 14, it just sums up everything we've learned from death and now from life. Look at verse 13. Put your eyes on verse 13. Look at it in your Bible. Consider. You see that first word? Consider the work of God. Consider it. See it. Recognize it. Open your eyes. Check it out. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Considerly, consider it. Literally, you know what that means? See the work of God. Like, see it. See his undoable deeds. Open your eyes. Look, see the outcome of his choices and his decrees. See that he does as he pleases. See that he makes things crooked and straight, and it's all from his hand. I mean, we all see what we do. We all see our anger. We all see our frustrations. We all see where we fail and, and fall. But we need to see and, and recognize what God does, sovereignty can override depravity. What, what does God do? Let's, let's look at what God does and then adjust accordingly. God has an answer to everything. You know, you, you can't alter his work. God's the one that appoints things. You're not living by fate. Just perish that thought. There's a personal God that providentially cares for his people and controls events. That's what the Bible teaches us. I love how Amy Carmichael, missionary to India, I love how she put it. In acceptance lieth peace. Accept the way God has, has made things. Uh, so many people, so many professing Christians, they have this desire to control and they don't understand the sovereignty of God. We throw it around, we misunderstand God's sovereignty. I mean, think of Job. Can we think of Job for a moment? 
Here's Job. He expresses trusting acceptance. Job 2.10. Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? God controls all events. He designs them for your Romans 8.28 good if you're a Christian. So you accept things with gratitude. You, you're content in all things. You count times of trouble joyfully. You know, what, you, know what, you know what Job says? Job 37, 14. Stop. Just take a time out and consider the works of God. Stop in your tracks and, and consider, see the works of God. You know, Isaiah speaks of people who, who hold feasts. They have parties and they don't regard the deeds of the Lord. They don't see the work of his hands. People ignoring God left and right. And, and we're being to just stop and consider the works of God. Verse 14, look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Not, not difficult, okay? Woohoo! The day of prosperity. Uh, literally, it means in a good day, be in good. In a good day, be in good. Like, just enjoy that. And then it says, in the day of adversity, consider, see. God has made the one as well as the other. Enjoy the good days. Like, don't waste the good days. Enjoy them. Don't waste the good days, uh, you know, being worried about the bad days that might come. Just enjoy the good days, but know that the day of adversity comes, and God brings both. Because the verse ends this way. Man cannot find out anything that will happen after him. Oh, you cannot predict everything that's going to happen. And one person put it this way, adversity might be a severe mercy of, of our sovereign God leading you to more substantial blessing. This is like Jesus saying in John 7, 16, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Just know that there's prosperity and there is adversity. And the reality of life necessitates faith in a sovereign God that brings both. That you are utterly dependent on God, you are not living by guesswork, and God holds the keys of all the unknown. That everything is subject to his will and his providence. This is what God says in one verse, chock full of goodness, of providential goodness. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel will stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. All in one verse. Ephesians 1.11 says, in him, Christians have an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things by the counsel of his will. You need to beware the fool that just trumpets their own autonomy all the time. Beware the fool who insists on their own autonomy. Don't make friends and be confidants with them. Befriend the wise who rest on God's sovereignty. Reach the other ones for Christ. But befriend the wise who rest upon the sovereignty of God. Think about it. We are living in, in treacherous times. We have an, a contentious election cycle. People are picking fights like it's the end of the world. And that's an understatement, right? And God is still sovereign. Jesus is on the throne, and the outcome is as planned. God sets up rulers. God puts down rulers for his purposes. But I've noticed, I am not seeing a lot of trust in God's sovereignty among a lot of professing believers in this moment on both sides of the aisle. Let me just speak quickly to those who 
are acting like it will be the end of the world if your candidate or coalition of people that uphold policies that you and God prioritize doesn't win. And let me just say, great thing for Christians is that your job description Wednesday morning as a Christian doesn't change one iota. It doesn't budge one bit. You're still called to get up on Wednesday morning and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You're still called to preach the gospel to everyone. You're still called to do evangelism and discipleship. You're still called to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. You're, you're still called to bring the Bible to bear on every aspect of life, including politics. No matter what happens in life, the calling of the Christian does not change. Isn't that great? I mean, you don't have to worry about it. Job description stays the same. You consider the work of God. You can't bend the world to make it the way you want if God has put it another way. The central doctrine, it's like the central doctrine of scripture. God made things the way they are. And if he wanted you to know why, he would have told you. And please don't tell me that he told you because he didn't. The closest thing you'll get to an explanation is Romans 9, who are you to answer back to God? Has the potter no right over the clay? Ultimate explanation, God is sovereign over all and works to glorify his name. There's, there it is. And it's so easy for all of us to accept prosperity, of course. But the day of adversity, must, you must remember the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. He made both. He made rain and earthquakes. He made your birthday and your death day. Think of Job's wife. I'm sure she was a wonderful gal. But she adopted a foolish theology. He counseled his wife biblically. He said, shall we receive good from God's hand and not receive evil? And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 2.10. If you evaluate your outward condition properly, your inner life will bend to God and his sovereignty. There are many professing Christians that are speaking foolish theology, like only what I want must happen. The truth is, God only does ultimate good and that he uses bad for good. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, if your doctrine is shaky, you'll be shaky in your whole life. If you're wrong on the great central truths of the faith, you're wrong at every point. You need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lived the theology of God's sovereignty. Daniel chapter 3 answers the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. And if not, I love that, but if not, we're not going to serve your gods, and we're not going to worship the golden image that you have set up no matter what you do to us. Just consider what God does. Just see it, evaluate it. Come to the conclusion, come to the correct conclusion. The test of your faith is your response to trouble. Your future is hidden in God's secret will. It's not available to you. You won't know until it happens. But just consider God's works. Consider God's works in Christ. I love the way that John Owen put it. And we'll close with this. John Owen said this, On Christ's glory, I will fix all my thoughts and desires. 
the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes and I become more and more crucified to this world. It becomes to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. You see, in Christ's strength and for his glory, you are to wisely govern your private life and guard your public life and glorify God for his sovereignty because wisdom glorifies God for his sovereignty. God knows better than us. Lord, we thank you. The wisest thing we can do is trust your purposes. Lord, may we see your work and recognize your ways. Lord, govern our hearts, guard our lives that we might glorify you for your sovereignty, all for the honor and fame of your name. Would you stand with us as we sing one last song together? The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son, who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you.
Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Oh, Jesus, thank also want to say thank you to all of you that are responding so uh, well to serving somewhere in the church. We still have some other needs, so check that out. And uh, also, remember, we have a men's gathering underneath this tent on Saturday morning. Also, we have the uh, Thanksgiving gathering on the 15th under this tent. A little different this year, but it'll still be great to get together. And let me close with Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day.